90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Just trying to make it through this week, man. (laughs) (laughs) Day by day. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I'm putting the finishing touches on an, an article for the Encyclopedia of Geology. So that's exciting. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was asked to write the article on field mapping, and that's due Friday. So, <laughs> so the day this releases. <laughs> so we'll see if I'm done on Friday. My guess is no, but I'll get it in on time. It's fine. <laughs> well, very nice. That'll yeah. be uh, That'll be fun. I know. I'm pretty excited about it. So it's the second edition. So if you pick up the Encyclopedia of Geology and you need to know about field mapping, it's going to be in there. <laughs> Well, fun. Yeah. So how long is this article that you're writing? Um, you know, it's they gave me a whole lot of leeway. Um, the last article was, it wasn't too much. It was probably like two and a half pages or something like that with figures. So it's really not, not that long at all. I thought that I was going to have to talk about digital mapping, but it turns out, thank the Lord, that digital mapping is its own entry. <laughs> so <laughs> I literally am talking about what pencils I like to take out into the field because that's what they want. So God knows I can talk about that. <laughs> Absolutely. I yeah. mean, you do listen to the pen addict. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to actually rein that in. I think that one's already one paragraph about pencils, and that's probably more than El Sevier wants. But <laughs> Probably. Yeah, probably. But I'm sure somebody will want to know about it. So I'll tell you about it when it's done. <laughs> Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So um, last we knew of you, you just left the country. We didn't know if you'd ever make it back or what happened. I mean, how was it? <laughs> it? It was pretty interesting. Okay. So you went south this time instead of north, though. I did. So I was on the island of Trinidad. So I was, you know, two miles from Venezuela. God, you can see it across the water. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so scary, fun, beautiful. Yes. Um, the So Trinidad and Tobago, I did a little bit of research, and uh, they've got a pretty interesting history. They became a republic in the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, but they were British before that and uh, Spanish before that. And mm-hmm. so there's a pretty weird mix of, or maybe not even a mix, there's just a weird set of cultures there. Right. Like, there wasn't a lot of local food necessarily Mm -hmm. but like okay well you can go have you know indian food or uh chinese food or kind of like here right in america we don't really have a local food there were a few local dishes that we had uh like a roti which was kind of like an indian (laughs) burrito (laughs) so we have two uh students from trini that are in our department that are grad students and they talk about roti all the time <laughs> yeah so it was actually really good mm-hmm. okay well, uh, that's good i, I was know. a big fan and i had some fried shark that was oh, good interesting what kind of shark do you know uh no it was said shark l- light shark meat she says <laughs> is what it sold as <laughs> tastes like chicken uh no <laughs> but it was surprisingly not that fishy mm, okay uh, I would have expected shark to be sort of tough and fishy. and I would have no. expected it to be tough, yeah, for sure. It was kind of flaky like cod. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so overall, I mean, it was a really interesting experience. The country is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but apparently Tobago is the more tourist-friendly island. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Trinidad's a little more industrial, and there's a pretty high crime rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, you know, we, we took a car everywhere and there were guards outside the hotel and guards outside the building that I was oh, working wow. in and all that. Gotcha. It's really, I mean, when you were researching it too, like the geology of Trinidad is actually really interesting because the island's very oddly shaped and that has to do with all these faults that are sort of running through it, which I mean is why all the offshore faults and everything is why oil companies are down there anyway. Um, but it's real weird when you actually start to look at the geology of the place too. Yeah. And 
you know, I was told that there are some absolutely gorgeous hikes, but just as a as a non local, it probably wasn't that safe for me to go do those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that's the too island. Bad. Well, when you go back. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, if I go back, I'll definitely uh, take a few days and maybe go up to Tobago mm-hmm. and explore there a little bit. But it, it was a great trip overall. I was gone for a full week. Uh, the flights. Where, you know, I flew in and out of Miami, mm-hmm. so it was only about four and a half hours. Right. Yeah, that's not bad. Uh, but there aren't many flights yes. every day. <laughs> so, you know, on the way down, I had an eight-hour layover in MIA. <laughs> did you leave the airport or did you just hang out? Uh, I just hung out at a Friday's, oh. drank lots of beer, and wrote lots of code. Oh, man. That sounds great. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, that's not too bad of an airport, too. You could have been stuck in worse places for eight hours. Yeah, it could have been Charlotte. Yeah, exactly. Or San Juan, Puerto Rico. That, or right. San Juan, or San Jose, Costa Rico. That one's pretty pretty <laughs> tiny and terrible, but that's okay. <laughs> so, yeah, no, overall, it was, a, uh, it was a good trip, good experience. I'm back in the country for this week and next week, and then I'm gone again. <laughs> Uh, of course you are. <laughs> but this one is actually going to be a very fun trip. So I'm going to be in London. Oh my gosh, man. Uh, and it is a it is a working trip, but I'm going to be staying right across from the Greenwich Observatory. Oh man. So you know from back in some of our early episodes that I have a small obsession with timekeeping. <laughs> oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> So there's going to be lots of nerding out about timekeeping. I was going to say, you better at least block off an afternoon. Oh, yeah. I'm saying an extra day. <laughs> okay. Good. That's good. <laughs> uh, and you're only going to stay there. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> is it your first time to go to London? It is, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. There's so much to do. So, yeah. Just focus. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. So and it's going to be a, a good trip as well. But... Other than that, you know, now that I'm back here, uh, we both experienced a pretty crazy set of storms this week. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was intense. Um, And I'm going to tell you, like, I haven't really been... This isn't really the time you pay attention. Our secondary severe weather season is kind of in, you know, late September and October. Not right now. And I was taken aback. We were actually uh, shopping for trucks. <laughs> and the salesman said, uh, someone said there's a tornado warning. So you guys should probably leave. <laughs> 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 and so, you know, you could see this huge storm in this beautiful, oh, God, the structure of the storm before it went crazy was amazing it was just this beautiful supercell it was highlighted by the setting sun there was anvil mammatus there was cg everywhere oh man it was great and i was like well it's far enough away but still maybe i should check this out and then we were up until you know 4 a.m hoping we weren't gonna die (laughs) yeah As I know you were, too, because it came your way later on. (laughs) It did. Uh, This is unequivocally the most electrically active storm I've ever been in. Wow, unequivocally. Okay. Yes. I've been in one other one where I was actually driving through it. We left a camping trip in the middle of the night because we were going to get pounded. And that's... That was more electrically crazy than this one, but that was probably just because I was driving through the center of it. But this one was, I took my son and I said, we're going to go up on top of a hill and look at this lightning. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I had uh, some neighbors to my business bring their phone system in (laughs) and say, is this repairable? And the the copper traces on the circuit board where the surge suppression was were uh, just gone. They were evaporated from the lightning. Oh my gosh! Oh my uh, gosh! So I, I looked on my cameras before I went to sleep that night, and I saw that I had water coming into my building under oh. a door seal Great. because we had probably sixty to seventy mile an hour mm-hmm. straight line winds here. Yeah, and it was constant. It was. I mean, they're making fun of some of the meteorologists here for calling an inland hurricane, but it was different than just a normal straight-lined wind event, it felt like. 
it wasn't gusting to 60 or 70 exactly. it was 60 or 70 yes exactly and it was gusting to just to our north at tinker air force base um here there was 86 mile an hour gusts and that's you know less than 10 miles away from us so we had lots of trees down uh, i had water blowing in so i go up there and i've got some very tall metal high tension power lines running right by my shop <laughs> scary and so I was not thrilled with the run from the truck to the shop. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> uh, but I made it in there and started sweeping water out and trying to get get things under control a little bit. And I saw a CG that could not have been more than a mile away because I know the commercial facility that it struck and took them out. <gasps> oh, my gosh. It was very bright, very close. Uh it's probably a little closer to the half mile side of that. Anyway, it was quite a storm. I was up late and not thrilled. <laughs> but we, we still have. So about in our area, in our county, we had about 20,000 people out of power. There are still quite a few without power, uh, including my family. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so that that's uh, 48 hours after the storm went through. We did not lose power, which we always lose power. We lose power when there are storms in Arkansas. So I don't know how this happened, but in the metro area, a hundred I heard 117,000 people Yeah, Yeah, that's power. crazy. That's, you know, a tenth of the population <laughs> of this area lost power because of the, the winds. And it's like our power lines were snapping, which is... The scariest noise, if anyone has heard this or not heard it, like, it's the scariest thing. So if the power lines touch together, sparks go everywhere, mm-hmm. and it's just this huge popping sound that was heard above the thunder. Um, so that happened several times. <laughs> we had two kids in bed with us at one point. <laughs> yeah, so we should actually do a paper on that sometime, because the, the physics of galloping power lines, it's something that the power companies try to combat, and there's a lot right. of information out there about it. Oh, really? No, we totally should. And then we should have our power line people on because we have this issue in our backyard a lot. And we had a very interesting conversation with the power guy the last time this happened. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, yeah, we should totally talk about that because that, I mean, 117,000 people, that's no joke. And that was just here, just like you said, 30,000 over there. You know, Tulsa had really bad storms too. Um, So, yeah, but I... (laughs) I commented several times that there are going to be several master's theses written about this storm that happened on Monday. <laughs> like oh, my yes. son, yeah, I mean, my son was out of school yesterday. He was super excited about that because there was no power. Um, but several master's theses because it was kind of weird, and that got me thinking that maybe we should just talk about storms in general. Um, and I figured we could, you know, later on down the road, we'll get into like what a derecho is, what is a straight line wind event, what's a microburst. Um, but we should probably start at the beginning with how you make storms in the first place. And we can come back to why this one was so different, because it really was. Right. So a thunderstorm fundamentally is a hot air from the sun heating the ground, rising and condensation forming. Mm-hmm. And okay. we're done. Fun paper Friday, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I teach this in intro and I very pointedly don't say that right away. I want to see what people know because in this neck of the woods, the general public knows a lot more about weather, I think, than maybe in the rest of the country. Oh, definitely. So therefore it's interesting to see, you know, what people think starts a thunderstorm. And yes. fundamentally, I mean, well, everything is heat and gravity. That's what I tell my class, which is true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> any question, we've said it before, and we'll say any question, exactly. the sun is a correct answer. It's so true. It's so true. And it really is for this. But the lifting thing can actually get pretty complicated because there's a lot of different mechanisms for lifting up that air. That's not just buoyancy caused by heating a parcel at the ground. Right, so you could do things like lift it up a mountain or a graphic lift. Not really a concern in Oklahoma. Hey. 
fine. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so fundamentally, you get this hot air going up and water condenses out of it. Uh Or water vapor condenses to be water. There you go. Liquid. (laughs) Yes. And that process releases heat, latent heat. Right. And when it does that, the parcel becomes more buoyant because it's now warmer. So it accelerates upwards faster and is surrounded by colder environmental air and more water comes out and it just accelerates upward until you get this massive towering thunderstorm that's 10 kilometers deep. Right. So that's what we call a feedback loop. (laughs) Right. And the 10 kilometers is the top of the troposphere, which is where we get all the weather. Because above that, your temperature stays the same and then starts to get hotter as you go into the stratosphere. So just thermodynamically, you can't really punch stuff much past that. But if you think about a picture of a huge thunderstorm... And, you know, it's flat on top, and you've got this structure. You've got the anvil, which is that big overshooting cloud that kind of runs along the top of the troposphere right there. And then sometimes you got a little hat on top of the thunderstorm, and that's what we call the overshooting top. So it's that runaway feedback loop that John just described, and it kind of shoots up um, into the tropopause, really, that area in between the troposphere and the stratosphere. Um, and after that, it just gets squashed down. It can't rise anymore because the air around it is hotter than it is. Right. And it's just momentum carrying air up right. into that overshooting top. Right. Exactly. So that is the updraft, the air going up. But things also have to come back down. Otherwise, we would have a vacuum at the surface. And nature abhors a vacuum, we all know. <laughs> Right. So in the updraft, you get this little, you know, if you were to draw the freezing line through the thunderstorm, you get this little bump up in it because we're bringing uh, warm air up. And then after we get enough condensation and things might start to cool down, drops coalesce and they start falling and create a downdraft. So there's air that's cooler than its environment that's moving down. And there's also rain that's moving down and viscously dragging air with it. And it's cooling air around it through evaporation of the raindrops as they fall. And we start getting downward motion in the storm too. So when I draw this on the board, I basically, the updraft is the storm eating and the downdraft is the storm pooping. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is silly, but it's true. And in either one of those, you can get some pretty strong winds. Definitely. And so when it's just the updraft, we would say the storm is developing, or it's Mm -hmm. in the development stage. Right. When it has a downdraft, and it's churning along, we're in the mature stage. But most storms, especially what we call an air mass thunderstorm, that's just a localized pocket of warm air that started a storm, the downdraft is on top of the updraft. And those two things fight. <laughs> um, and that's when you get lots of fun stuff happening up inside the clouds when you have that fighting motion. Right. And so eventually the downdraft is going to win and right. cut off the updraft air into the storm and the storm starts dying in the dissipating stage. Ah, which seemed to never happen with this storm <laughs> this week. It didn't. And, you know, supercells generally, so these air mass thunderstorms have these three stages, and it takes about an hour to go through all three. Mm-hmm. Uh, supercells very long-lived because of a special thing that we'll talk about. Uh, but one thing I love is if you do the calculation of, like, what should the updraft speed be based on thermodynamics around a storm mm-hmm. before you get updraft-downdraft separation, which we'll get to. You see a speed that's about twice what you would expect to have measured in the storm. Okay. And it's very very consistent. So it's because of water loading. Ah, okay. So that downdraft raining into our updraft slows that updraft air by a factor of two. That's impressive. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, thank goodness, I guess, because then you're going to get sucked up into the storm and then blown out the back end. Right. (laughs) Uh, That's impressive and very thermodynamically complex. 
It is. And so, I mean, that's why these little air mass thunderstorms, you get like a breeze feeding warm, moist air into the storm. Whereas a supercell, you get inflow that can be 40 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the difference between a thunderstorm, as, you know, lots of people would just call it, and a supercell is that supercells, the updraft isn't just getting sucked up and then you have your interactions and then the downdraft eventually blows it out, but you start to rotate the storm in those central layers. Now you've got a rotating updraft. That's now a supercell, not just your garden variety thunderstorm. Right. And one reason that supercells and storms like the other one last night that were squall lines uh, are, are so long lived is the updraft and the downdraft get separated. Mm-hmm. So air gets sucked into the updraft and then the downdraft happens in a geographically different location because of wind shear. Right. And so this was always so... I don't know how classic it was, but it visually looked classic until you couldn't see it anymore because we started with this one big storm. And like I said, it had a beautiful overshooting time. It was about maybe 100 miles north of us, so you could really see the structure. You know, you could see the big anvil, the mammatus out on the anvil, the overshooting top, and then if you looked further to the west, you could see another little storm starting. And then you could see another little storm starting. And so these storms were popping up along what we'd call the trailing line. Right. And then, then it got really big. All those little storms started to grow. And then you got this really big MCS thing, multi-scale, you know, convective complex thing. Um, And that thing... Now you've got the separation between your updraft and your downdraft. You're not operating in just that one little storm. And, I mean, it lasted forever. It went on a long time. Yeah, and so the thing that enabled that, you know, when I say wind shear, I don't know if everybody's familiar with that, but wind's blowing different directions at different heights. Right. So at the lower levels, maybe we've got wind blowing in one direction. At the upper levels, they might be 90 degrees or 180 degrees to that. And that helps this storm get kind of, uh, if, if you imagine the storm as a deck of cards, and then you just kind of pushed on the top and you get that rhomboidal shape, mm-hmm. that's sort of what happens to the storm when you have wind shear. Mm-hmm. And so, so you get these long-lived things, and there's a wonderful piece of meteorology jargon that people will throw around, which is the QLCS. Love it. The quasi-linear convective system. <laughs> a, a line-looking thing of convection, which is this process that we've been describing. Right. That's persistent. Right. And that's exactly how this thing started. Yes, and it, it moved pretty fast not only from the surrounding flow but from these significant downdrafts right exactly and you can get too much wind shear so the wind shear has to be just right to keep this thing going because if your differences in speed and changes a direction in height can be too much and blow it apart this is actually really important for keeping a hurricane going is that you need a low amount of wind shear um especially at those upper levels. So too much wind shear will inhibit this kind of thing from forming. So you kind of have to get in that, you know, Goldilocks zone of wind shear to get this thing that happened earlier this week, which is why I said people are going to be studying it for a while. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it also, there was a lot of many different sizes of precipitation that were getting very agitated by the complex motion in the storm mm-hmm. that I'm hypothesizing were what was responsible for the electric nature. Okay. That makes sense. I've never, like I said, with the exception of that one middle of the night storm that I was driving through, I mean, it was constant. The lightning was constant. We were throwing around words earlier, like CG. And so, you know, you can have cloud to cloud lightning. Those are those little runners that go out like along, um, along the tops of the storm and there were some beautiful ones of that. And then you can get CG, which is cloud to ground lightning. That can obviously do a lot of damage. Um, and there was 
definitely a lot of that too. It was just, I mean, it was electric constantly. I told my class, my paleoclimate class, that I would give them extra credit to see their lightning pictures. And at least six people came up and showed me <laughs> lightning pictures from the other night. Well, and I was really disappointed because I have a brand new lightning polarity instrument design oh. that's sitting inside my building because I don't have the mounting brackets yet. Oh, you could have just stuck it on your truck and drove around. Man, it would have been an outstanding data set. Oh, I can't. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, this was so crazy um i said we were shopping for trucks and my son was at home and he calls and he goes uh there's a lot of light in the sky (laughs) (laughs) i was like uh yeah buddy (laughs) yeah there is don't go outside (laughs) um yeah what was cool about the lightning too besides what was happening during that storm here in norman and they even mentioned this in the forecast discussion was we would get i would get periodically woke up by these massive thunder rolling and like it'd be a big flash and a big thunder rolling and that's it it's not raining and i of course you know have my radar scope app up and i look and i'm like there's nothing here like there's nothing over us and this happened for several hours in the morning and these were big anvil strikes so they were coming from really far away but they were hitting yeah very close to us so that's the thing of like if you can see lightning you can get struck by it (laughs) well in the last week there was a really interesting video of a gentleman that was walking down the sidewalk with an umbrella during what looked like a garden variety afternoon pop-up thunderstorm uh and lightning struck approximately 24 inches from him (sighs) on the sidewalk wow Uh, it's a really amazing security camera video yeah, pretty much every national news outlet had it, so you can find it that way. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a big hazard. I would say it's probably one of the largest hazards with these, though flooding is not far behind. Right. And we had a, some flash flood warnings in our area. Right, exactly. Yeah, we had a we didn't get as much rain as Oklahoma City did just north of us. Um, they got so much. I mean, but we live just south of a lake here. And there was somebody that was trapped at the dam because of flooding there, which I don't know why there was somebody there during the storm. But you're right. Flooding is a huge problem. And constantly, you know, you just watch people drive into the flood waters down some road that they have been on a hundred times. And then their car stalls out. And then their car starts floating away because it only takes like four inches of water to float a car away. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But the the lightning, it, it really... It makes me mad, and I am hypersensitive to this in terms of field safety and, you know, like, my kids' athletic safety and everything. You know, if you can if you can see lightning, you can get hit by it, you know, as long as it's not 200 miles away. But even then, sometimes there's some weird stories. <laughs> yeah, and I was actually really happy to see. I was doing uh, a little experiment out on a field in Tulsa, and it was adjacent to some sports fields. And they actually had, on top of, like, the clubhouse in the center of all the sports fields, a lightning instrument that when there was lightning that it detected nearby, it would start flashing a light and sounding an alarm, and that meant all games stopped instantly. Wow, really? So it takes the people out of the equation. If this machine detects lightning within a certain radius, you're done. That's impressive. It was, and especially, I mean, I would argue that that's better than some professional sporting events recently have done. I, oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I Looking mean, at you, golf. I, <laughs> so I just Googled this because I had just read that there was um, a golfer that was hit by lightning not very long ago. My husband was telling me about this. So it was in Atlanta, and it was this. it was a fan. It wasn't actually a golfer, and they sheltered under a tree during a thunderstorm um but there's actually a bunch of people that got injured in that lightning strike because once lightning hits it starts to travel and also it's not just one bolt it has tiny little stringers on it so it's not like you're safe (laughs) if you're anywhere near a bolt of lightning even if you don't get struck by the main bolt and this just happened last week um at a pga tour stop so yeah 
Yeah, so thunderstorms present a, a wide variety of hazards, and it's amazing because their formation is really pretty straightforward. Now, the mechanics of how they maintain themselves and why some produce tornadoes, why some don't, that's all pretty complicated. But the basics of why a thunderstorm works are pretty simple, and you can watch this textbook pattern repeat over and over and over again once you know it. Oh, exactly. And I mean, I think this is what draws people to thunderstorms in general is like their beauty in the first place, because like I said, this thing was wonderfully textbook. And then you look to the west and you see all these little bitty ones coming up along the trailing line, just getting smaller as you go farther away. You know, you knew this front was coming in. They actually forecasted the location of the severe weather pretty well um, because we knew this front was coming in, which is what we call a forcing mechanism for this. So it wasn't just that simple <clears throat> heating up and lifting and turning into a thunderstorm, but you had this kind of extra oomph going with this front. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about, John, because I don't know if you noticed, but man, the gust front on this storm was unreal. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the gust front is what destroyed all of my wife's potted plants outside yeah. our house before right. this storm was here. So my husband goes, who's going to go roll up my truck windows? And I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so, you know, I dumbly, I'm like, I'll go do it. Um, you know, the truck's like 50 feet from the house and it's lightning, but the storm's still quite a ways away. And no sooner did I get back inside after doing this, than my gosh, like everything started blowing everywhere. All the patio furniture turned over and I got on the radar and you know you can see a gust front on radar because that gust front kicks up all kinds of stuff you know sometimes it's bugs sometimes it's dust it sometimes it's lawn furniture <laughs> <laughs> but that thing got so far out in front of these storms and i feel like just from experience you see this gust front blow out and sometimes it cuts off like the air that the storm wants to eat right so it cuts off the updraft, it can cut off all the warm, juicy air that the storm is is growing on. And that can be the death of this. But we were putting the severe thunderstorm warnings as far out as the gust front was, which was at sometimes like 50 miles in front of the storm complex. Yeah, and so a gust front, or sometimes people will be fancy and call it an outflow boundary. Yeah, yeah. Is... <laughs> When you have that downdraft, it's creating a cold pool of air below the storm. And that cold pool of air expands, actually exactly like a turbidity current. Mm -hmm. Right, yep. And so you get this expanding cold pool of air at the low levels. And it creates a mini cold front that starts lifting the warm air that the storm is eating out ahead of the storm. And so you get these really beautiful roll clouds on the front of the storms. Uh, sometimes associated with these. But if the downdraft is too strong and that cold pool gets too big, then, yeah, you cut off the inflow and kill the storm. It's referred to as gusting out. Right, yeah. Uh, but when you're looking on the radar, if you look in front of a squall line uh, or around large storms, you'll often see these little thin lines of reflectors, like Shannon said, that are mostly bugs. And I love watching when there's a bunch of discrete storms watching all the outflow boundaries collide and create complicated shapes. Yeah. Because it's sort of like a triple junction in geology. It's it's so cool. And this is one of the, I see I have goosebumps right now. Because <laughs> it's one of those, <laughs> just like you said, it's the same physics, but different time scales. Not so much with the turbidity current. That's actually about the same time scale. Right. <laughs> but with the triple junction, it's a different time scale. But this is the same physics. Like, it's so neat to think about it because the cold, dense air just flows along the bottom. Um, but this one did not gust out. Like, this thing was just, this QLCS was just too big. And it wasn't, I don't know, I don't know why. I have a feeling this will be a master thesis, my question right now, which is why didn't it gust out when that thing was so strong? Well, you had um, super juicy air, too. It, it just was. It was too juicy. Yep, I mean, it was it like was, 86 over 70. It was. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It was a little a little gross outside. Um, it, but it just blew my mind because at the zenith of it, you know, obviously I took this screenshot. The severe thunderstorm warning was five counties wide. 
and it was a good 50 miles in front of the first like radar echo because that gust front was so strong it had to be warned on right that's it's, crazy uh, <laughs> it was quite the storm but these are all features that once you know to look for them when you look on the radar you can say oh it's going to get windy in about two minutes and exactly. freak out your friends exactly and i mean we're just talking about we've just been talking about the reflectivity but you know there's another part of radar the velocity measurements um and this is what i used to work on at the severe storms laboratory um and you'll see this on either your radar app or if you're watching your local television station they'll have all these you know like little rotating circles or stuff like this and it's these very specific radar signatures that algorithms can pick up and start to say, hey, this looks like it's going to start rotating. You need to look here. Or, hey, look at this big hail core. You should look here. Um, and these automated algorithms are supposed to help, you know, bring attention to the forecasters, whether it's a weather service forecaster or a television forecaster, um, and help them determine where these, like, danger for people areas are. And that's something, you know, we can we can go on and talk about um, in the future because tornadoes have a very specific velocity signature. Downbursts have a very specific velocity signature, stuff like that. So if you geeked out above and beyond, you were looking at your velocity signatures during this straight line wind event. Um, it was just crazy. Those velocities were way past the Nyquist values. <laughs> and if you really geeked out, you're looking at differential reflectivity. Yeah. Yeah, I was. You're right. <laughs> yep. So, but those are all topics for future shows, I think. Right. Exactly. Um, so we all, we survived the inland hurricane. It was real exciting. And it prompted this whole conversation because it was such a strange and beautiful event, despite the, you know, terrible things that happened in terms of lightning strikes and all the poor tree damage and everything like that. But my kid got out of school, so he's pretty happy about that. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> so now I think it's probably time to talk about a different geologically related, <laughs> and actually meteorologically related topic. Convectively in, related. <laughs> yeah, in this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Can you tell I was hungry when I sent this to you? Uh, it inspired us to have pizza for dinner tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the Physics of Baking Good Pizza by Varlamov, Glatz, and Grasso. <laughs> I love I love when scientists are like, you know, let's write a paper about this dumb thing we talked about over beers for five nights in a row. <laughs> right. And also, this is definitely... Um, someone that we've never seen in a fun paper Friday and their association is food anthropologist. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just this, what makes a good pizza? But if you're interested in history at all, the first like five pages of this paper is the history of pizza. Yeah. And I love that the first written down instance of pizza being used as a word was in a church donations <laughs> register where somebody pledged to donate a dozen pizzas <laughs> for two different religious holidays. <laughs> I'm going to start celebrating this in my household because it's Easter and Christmas. We're having a dozen pizzas in honor of the first written pizza. <laughs> you know, I mean, that just goes to show that Folks have been donating pizza to good causes for a long time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, because this document was dated 99780. Exactly. God, that's beautiful. They go into the etymology of the word pizza, which is very interesting. A lots of, you know, Greek and Mediterranean um, pizzas. One thing I didn't know was where the margarita pizza comes from. I didn't realize this, that it was for, um, that's actually not very old, the 1880s that it was to pay homage to the Italian queen and to pieces didn't generally have cheese on them, I guess. 
what's the point? Ew. But yeah. <laughs> but they added mozzarella to their tomato and basil pizza, making it look like the red, white, and green Italian flag. That's margarita pizza. Um, and man, I imagine just from reading this, I mean, I imagined anyway, but definitely from reading this, like people, especially in Italy, are probably very, very loyal to their region's pizza style, which sounds very different. It is. And so well, when I was in Italy doing some work during grad school, I had the opportunity to eat like pizza in Rome. And then we flew to Sicily for a Ooh. meeting. Uh-huh. and had pizza in Sicily, it was two entirely different pizzas. And uh-huh. each one of them, when I was uh, attempting to communicate <laughs> with the people, the pizzerias, uh, uh-huh. it was insisting that theirs was real pizza. That's, <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> I mean, you have these fights here over, you know, New York versus Chicago-style pizza. Yeah, so I mean, one was really thin, like in Rome, it was a very thin crust, round pizza that was very crispy. In Sicily, it was more your deep dish cheese lover style. Oh, okay. So Sicily's uh, where to go. I, I was more of a fan of the Sicilian pizza. Mm. That's really interesting. Um, I can't go to Italy. I think I'll just gain 90 pounds before I come back. <laughs> uh, accurate. <laughs> and you don't even like food that's not chicken strips, so that's that means a lot coming from you. I want everyone to know that. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, this is crazy, but so just what you said, thin and crispy versus not is kind of the point of this, the kind of the point of the paper. Yeah, and so they said that a lot of the professional pizza makers would insist that a wood-fired oven is much better than an electric oven. And it's got bricks in it instead of just a steel plate. And it makes a big difference in the quality of the pizza and the throughput of the oven. And so like any good physicist, they said, how big a difference and why? (laughs) So bring in the thermodynamics of a steel versus brick oven. Yeah, so we know the thermal conductivity of these substances. We can determine the thermal conductivity of dough. This is a relatively simple problem that can be analytically solved with Fourier transform solutions. Um, Which I love how they actually, they started from the beginning when they're talking about um, doing this. And this is actually a really good paper to like read in a high school physics class, I think. Don't you? Oh, absolutely. Because not only is the physics accessible... Mm-hmm. but it gets you used to reading papers. <laughs> right. And the way they write it, like they start from the, you know, fundamental, you know, specific heat capacity is this. Here's the equation. Let's apply this to this problem. Right. Which will ease you into the, it's intuitively obvious to the most casual observer <laughs> style of <laughs> normal journal papers. Right. Exactly. Um, it does get there, you know, in a couple pages, it gets like that. Um, but this is very interesting. Um, they talk to, obviously they talk to a pizzeria owner who I assume is the food anthropologist on this paper, <laughs> um, about, Two, this is really funny, not something I thought about, when you want to visit pizzerias, because based on physics, I mean, this is intuitive to chefs, but, you know, there's a specific amount of time and temperature you want to bake these pizzas. But when you have a whole lot of people, so when it's really busy, they crank up the oven temperature so they can get cook it faster, but it's not necessarily ideal. And so there's a lot of talk in here about what is that temperature right at that interface and how time plays a big role in that. And they have a very interesting analog to it, which is a child with a fever and a mother trying to check that fever. Right. So if you press the back of your hand to your kid's forehead, what does that thermal discontinuity look like over several seconds? Right. And then... As we do in physics, if it's not the back of your hand, but it's the mom's forehead, how does that change it? And then if the mom's forehead is made of steel, what does that look like? And then if the (laughs) child is made of dough and spherical. (laughs) Which most children are. (laughs) 
Right. <laughs> so th- they start out with this pretty simple approach, and they start getting some answers that way. Of okay, well, we think the pizza will get to approximately this temperature, but there is definitely a difference between a steel gas-fired oven and a wood oven. And that starts coming down to all of the things that they neglect, like, mm-hmm. namely, radiation instead of just conductive heat transfer. What's the radiative heat transfer look like? Because that's going to look different when you're surrounded in a steel box versus when you're surrounded in a brick box. Right, because if you get all of that brick up to 230 Celsius, mm-hmm. and you assume that the pizza is a black body. Yeah, then you've got then that's pizza (laughs) stefan boltzmann law yeah Yeah. you're putting almost a joule per second per square centimeter of energy into this pizza that's Uh, crazy uh, uh. so i just imagine some big fat italian guy yelling too many joules (laughs) (laughs) um that's that's that is very interesting i mean the shape of the ovens too which i wanted to mention before i mean that that's a big deal too yeah. Especially for radiative heat transfer, because these brick ovens usually have these, you know, arched tops versus what you probably don't see in a steel oven. So, Right. Well, and so I'm, I just did the calculation. I'm going to do it again to make sure I, yeah, so that's right. So that is like if you plugged your pizza into your 120 volt wall outlet <laughs> and it drew 63 amps. So your typical house circuit is a 15-amp circuit, and that has a lot of plugs on it. Um, yeah, so that would be... That's hilarious. It's like running six or seven vacuum cleaners off your pizza. <laughs> Too hot. It's a lot of energy. <laughs> That's definitely going to burn the roof of your mouth. <laughs> yeah. yeah there's there's a heat transfer problem for you exactly and and they talk a little bit about well we're spending a lot of energy evaporating water we know that's an expensive process because of latent heat of water mm-hmm. yeah uh i they didn't treat this as a stefan problem right which is a it's a class of problem that holds a special place in my heart uh, <laughs> because i spent a lot of time working on them so the Stefan problem is when you have, uh, let's say I put a tub of water into the freezer. Okay. And so it starts freezing from the outside in, right? Right. So the thermal conductivity of ice and the thermal conductivity of water are vastly different. Yes. So I have a boundary between different phases of material that moves with time. So it's no longer a simple heat transfer. There is no analytic solution. Right. Oh God, that's, that's rough. And so it's really a Stefan problem because as the dough rises and cooks and gets those air pockets in it, air's a great insulator. Mm -hmm. And as the water goes out, water's a great conductor. You're really going to have a Stefan problem. But I loved that even not considering the Stefan problem, they were able to calculate. So the the pizza folks told them that two minutes was the perfect time at the correct temperature in a brick oven. They calculated 125 seconds. So that Stefan problem only bought about five seconds, five seconds. of problems there. <laughs> That's beautiful. Oh, man. Um, this was super cool. Yeah, and you know they said that the electric oven, because it has this different radiation versus conduction profile, creates a more unbalanced cooking of the pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's something that I would not have thought about making a difference, but I've heard people swear by their wood fired ovens. Right, exactly. Yep. And so there you a, go. Yeah. Putting a pizza stone in your regular oven and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Um. When you're talking about the different, you know, getting evaporating the water or whatever, and they talk about 
the differences in whether you have like eggplants or tomato slices, like thick tomato slices on top, stuff with lots of water. Right. And how yeah. that actually changes how it gets baked. And that's just by, you know, the actual bakers knowing how to do it. But the thermodynamics of that, you know, are proven out in this paper too. Yeah. So it said that they will actually like go in with the little paddle and lift the pizza up so that there's no conductive heat transfer to the base because yeah. the base of the pizza is done, but we need a little more time on the top. Uh, Pizza Hut definitely doesn't do that when no. you put your pizza through the little oven with the little wire <laughs> conveyor belt. That's right. I was going to say, I appreciate this attention of detail to detail in my pizzas, that's for sure. Uh, yes, I, I do too, considering that they are one of the three major food groups for me. <laughs> I wish I could say that was not true for me, but no, it absolutely is. I could eat pizza every day. In fact, we had pizza tonight because of this. We had pizza last night too. <laughs> Yep, there's pizza, there's meat, and then there's breakfast food. <laughs> All right, Ron Swanson, wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've done some calculations on the thermodynamics of your pizza to find the idealized cooking time for your oven with your preferred toppings, you can send those in to us along with pictures of your empirical studies of pizza crispiness. <laughs> Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, yes, send us your pizza pics. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. Uh, we're on the Slack chat room. You can come visit us. We're the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thanks to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us on Patreon to keep us going, or if you want stickers, let us know. Um, any of those ways above is fine. And you can find us at patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. Until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funders.